So as I said, our message this week is on uh, 1 Corinthians 14, but we're going to start by taking a few minutes to look back at some of the key teachings from chapter 3 um, that's essential for us to have in mind these things in order to fully understand what's being talked about in chapter 14. So here's chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 10. It says, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. So that's a metaphor. Paul's not actually constructing a building here. Uh, the idea is that Paul has laid a foundation by being the first one to preach the gospel in, in Corinth. So he founded the church in Corinth, he laid its foundations, and now other people are building on the foundation that Paul has laid. Other people are building up the church. goes on to say, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. So Paul anticipates here that many people will be building on this foundation. He says each one should build with care. You could also put that as everyone should build with care. Who is going to be building the church? The people who are doing ministry there, the people that God has gifted to do ministry, that is, all the people of the church, all the Christians in Corinth, are all to be building um, on that foundation and building up the church. It goes on to say, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. The point here is that there will be a judgment when everyone's work will be evaluated by God. And if God is pleased with the work that you've done in building his church, you'll be rewarded. If God is not pleased, you will suffer loss. Now, we spent a fair bit of time talking about this passage a few weeks ago in a sermon uh, called uh, it in our It Happened in Corinth 2 series, uh, especially the sermon from July 1st. It was called uh, Winning the Imperishable Wreath. And you can find that on our website, which is clearwater.church, or you can find it on our Clearwater Church app. If you missed that sermon, you can go back and listen to it and hear more about that section from chapter 3. But let me summarize some of uh, the main points of what uh, we talked about back then in that message. Here's the big ideas from chapter 3. Number one, we are expected to be building up the church. That's an expectation, that we will all be working to build up the church. Number two, our work building up the church will be evaluated by God. <coughs> Third, we will be rewarded for good work. We will suffer loss if our work is of poor quality. And the rewards or losses that we will receive from God will be substantial. We don't know exactly what form those are going to take, but trust me, you want the reward it's going to be great, and you don't want to suffer the loss. So now let's look at chapter 14 with that context in mind of building up the church and what that means. Here's what it says in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Follow the way of love. That, of course, ties this back. You know, it's right there on the heels of chapter 13 that we talked about last week, the love chapter. Um, 
and all those teachings about love that we that we looked at last week. And then he says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Now, why should we desire these gifts? Well, because they are given for the common good, for the building up of the church. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gave us gifts to build up the church. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The purpose of the gifts is to build up the body of Christ, to build up the church. So when the Bible says, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, the context tells us that the reason we want these gifts is so that we can use them to build up the church. The gifts are not the goal. Building up the church is the goal, and the gifts are one of the ways that God has equipped us in order to work toward that goal. They are a key means of building well. And really, this is the big point that I want to emphasize from chapter 14 today. Um, it's, it's one of the key ideas in that whole chapter, but I, I don't want to get too distracted by the more controversial and mysterious topics of tongues of prophecy, which we're going to spend some time on today. Uh, the main thing is that the Bible wants us to be eager to build up the church, to be ambitious in our desire to build up the church, and to be zealous to build up the church. The whole discussion of tongues and prophecy is just as a means of accomplishing the building up of the church. And the emphasis is, is right throughout the chapter. In verse 12, it says, Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. And then in... Uh, Verse uh, 26, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church of Christ may be built up. So in the context, he's saying everything. He means everything that's done when we gather together uh, must be done in a way that builds up the church. But I think that it, it, it really fits the biblical theme here to say that everything must be done so that we can build up the church. Don't make a half effort. Don't do a few things to try to build up the church. Do everything you can. Everything must be done to work toward building up the church. Uh, then later in the chapter he says, For you can prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So this one doesn't use that same terminology of building up the church, but that's what it's talking about. Instructing and encouraging others are two of the main ways that we build up the church. And let's, let's talk about that for a second. What are we even talking about when we say building up the church? I think there's two main ideas that we have in mind here. Uh, first, we build up the church when we present the gospel message to people and they turn from their sins and they accept uh, the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus and they become part of the church. When new people are added to the church, the church is built up. And the second way that we build the church is when we help one another to grow in spiritual maturity, when we help each other to know God better, to understand what it means to live the way that God intends for us to live, and when we help each other to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what it means to build up the church. And that is one of the greatest tasks of our lives. We are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. 
We are a part of God's plan for the world to gather and prepare a people for himself. We have been given the great commission to go into the world and make disciples. We are a part of God's team to build up the church. This gives our lives meaning way beyond the ordinary things of life. Your life is meant to be about more than the common, ordinary things that we go about day to day. Our lives are bigger than that. Our purpose and our meaning is bigger than that. We are to be building up the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he is doing that through you and me. So, do everything to build up the church. Seek to use your spiritual gifts and every other resource that God has given you to build up the church. Now, here in chapter 14, the gifts for building up the church that are discussed at some length are the gifts of tongues and prophecy. So let's talk about, or let's take a look first at these, these first few verses, and then we'll talk about them a little bit. This is uh, chapter 14, starting with verse 1. It says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So Paul is focused on these two gifts here, and he argues at some length, in fact, he goes on for another 20 verses, that prophecy is better than tongues. Um, or at least it's better than uninterpreted tongues. Why? Because prophecy speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Tongues without interpretation communicates nothing to anyone. Paul says it communicates something to God, and the person speaking is edified, but the church gains nothing. Therefore, Paul says, prophecy is better, because the goal is to build up the church. Now, before we go any further here, we've got to take a few minutes to define our terms. What is prophecy, and what is tongues? So we're going to take a couple of minutes here to, to, to take a good look at this. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us what we might call a dictionary definition of either of those terms. There's no verse that says, here's what prophecy is defined as, or here's what tongues is defined as. But we do have quite a bit of data about prophecy to work with to get a pretty good idea of what the Bible means when it talks about prophecy. Uh, mostly what we have is examples of prophets and their messages. But we also have some direct teaching that explains a little bit about how prophecy works and what it is. And um, the most important part of the definition, and also the part that's most widely agreed on, is that prophecy is bringing a message from God to people. Bringing a message from God to people. It is a message from God. This means it's not simply a message about God. This is a message that God has given to the prophet. And the content of the message might be about God, or it might be about something else. Um, 
And notice too that uh, we're not saying that prophecy is a prediction of the future. It's a message from God. Sometimes God reveals the future in a prophecy. Sometimes he reveals his evaluation of the past. Many times his message reveals a timeless truth. The second part of the statement is that the message is delivered to people. If God reveals a message to someone and they don't tell anyone else about it, that's not a prophecy. Uh, a prophecy uh, is, 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 is when the message is given and then we deliver it. The prophet speaks or writes or communicates his message to other people. Now, one of the key passages that helps us understand how prophecy works is from the book of 2 Peter. Here's what it says there. It says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Often the biblical prophets spoke in the first person as the voice of God himself. Now, one of the few instances we have uh, in, uh, the, in the New Testament where we actually have the message that a recorded of what a prophet had to say and exactly how he did it uh, is, is from uh, Acts chapter 21 with a prophet named Agabus. Agabus was sent by God to warn Paul that if he continues on his journey to Jerusalem as he's uh, going, he will be arrested when he arrives. So here's what it says in uh, Acts chapter 21. It says, Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Notice how Agabus introduces his message. Uh, he doesn't say, I have a feeling that God wants me to say something like this. He says, the Holy Spirit says this. Um, the message that Agabus is bringing to God is God's message to Paul, and Agabus is, is acting as God's spokesman. That is prophecy. Now, how did Agabus know what the Holy Spirit wanted to say to Paul? Or to generalize it, how do prophets get their messages? How do they know, uh, how, do, how do they receive this message from God that they are supposed to bring to people? Now that is where um, solid Bible-believing Christians have some different understandings of exactly what the Bible teaches on this. Where do these messages come from? Some people believe that it doesn't matter how the prophet gets the message from God, only that he has a message from God for people to hear. So this message could come from contemplating God's creation and learning an important message about God from it. Or maybe the message could come from, uh, for many Christians, they think that the, the most common type of prophecy is when someone reads or studies the Bible and learns a message from God through their study of the Bible, and then they bring that message to other people, and they say, that's, that's prophecy. Uh, if the message comes mediated to the prophet through the scripture, that doesn't make it any less of a prophecy. Um, others, uh, so many good Christians believe that the Bible defines prophecy that way. But I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I interpret the scriptures uh, and the passages like the two that we just looked at and the story of Agabus and the description of prophecy in 2 Peter 
to say that the prophet gets his message directly from God. Not mediated through a written text or through general revelation of the created world. God speaks directly to and through the prophet so that he can say, the Holy Spirit says. Prophets speak from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that the prophet Ezekiel can say many times over variations of this introduction to his messages in the book of Ezekiel. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The word of the Lord came to me, and this is what the sovereign Lord says. That's prophecy. Receiving a direct message from God for people and delivering it to them as a message from God. Now, defining the gift of tongues is quite a bit more difficult than defining prophecy. And that's because uh, the gift of tongues, we, we have a, a very sparse amount of biblical data on this. Um, first thing we have to say uh, about it is that the word that we translate into English as tongues means simply languages. There is the, there's no other word for languages in the original uh, Greek language that the Bible was written in. The tongues is languages. That's It's not a separate word. It's not some... Uh, different way of putting it. Um, so we could easily translate this as the gift of languages rather than the gift of tongues. That would be perfectly appropriate. But then uh, beyond that, the main reason that it's difficult to define what we mean by the gift of tongues or languages is that there is very little biblical data to work with. Tongues is only mentioned in the book of Acts and in the book of 1 Corinthians. Nowhere else in the Bible is the gift of tongues mentioned at all. And uh, in Acts, it's mentioned three times. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came in and dwelled Jesus' followers, they spoke in tongues. And the result was that all the people in Jerusalem who had traveled there from far and wide for the festival, they all heard the Christians declaring the gospel to them in their own home languages. And on that occasion, the gift of tongues was that God enabled these Christians to speak to all the various people in their own languages, despite the fact that the Christians didn't know how to speak those languages. But God miraculously enabled them to speak. And this served as a sign to those who were hearing the gospel that God was really with these Christians and that they should listen to the message that they were bringing about salvation from sins through Jesus. Now, the other two times that tongues is mentioned in Acts are when the first Gentiles became Christians, and then when Paul, in his travels, he met a group of guys who only knew about John the Baptist, and they had accepted the teachings of John the Baptist, but they hadn't heard yet about Jesus. And so when Paul explained to them about Jesus, um, they uh, believed the message, received the Holy Spirit, and spoke in tongues, and were baptized. With the other group, uh, it was... Uh, when they heard the message from Peter, when the group of Gentiles heard the message from Peter, believed in it, and they, were, they spoke in tongues. And in both cases, the purpose of the tongues was as a sign to show that God accepted these new, gifts, uh, new groups of Christians uh, and sent his Holy Spirit to indwell them, just as he had with the Jewish Christians on the day of Pentecost. 
Now, beyond that, it isn't really clear what the purpose of the tongues was in this case. There's no indication that it enabled them to communicate the gospel to people who didn't speak their language or anything like that. It, it, as far as we can tell, it was simply a sign of God's acceptance and God's uh, embracing <coughs> of these new groups of people into the church. So those are the three from the book of Acts. All the other references to tongues in the Bible are in 1 Corinthians. Um, in fact, in chapters 12, 13, 14, that's, that's where we find them all. In chapter 12, in verse 10, tongues occurs in a list of gifts of the Spirit. And the next gift in the, uh, in the list is the interpretation of tongues. And of course, Paul knew that the Corinthians already knew what this gift was. And so he doesn't need to define it for them. And so we don't get a definition either. Uh, but he just lists it. And then at the end of chapter 12, tongues comes up again, and it's an important uh, verse here. Here it is at the end of chapter 12. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? These are rhetorical questions. He's not giving us the answers here, but the answers are implied, right? No. None of these gifts are given to everyone. In fact, uh, this, is, uh, this tells us with, with, with certainty that not all the Christians in Corinth spoke in tongues. And in fact, that's one of the main themes of that whole chapter 12, is that God has given a variety of gifts to different people. We're not the same. We, we have uh, different gifts as God has distributed them. We don't all have any gift and we don't all speak in tongues. Then in chapter 13, there's another mention of tongues that's very important in understanding what the gift is, because a lot of people think that this really tells us what is going on in the gift of tongues. And it's in uh, verses 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what it says. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So in this section here, the expressions of the gifts in these verses are all exaggerated. That is, these are not definitions of what the gifts are. The gift of prophecy does not mean that the prophet can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. The gift of faith does not mean that the gifted person has the power to shift flat top mountain over a quarter mile. The gift of giving does not mean that the person gives everything they own to the poor. And the gift of tongues does not mean that you can speak in the language of angels. This is hyperbole, to make the point that uh, love is absolutely necessary. This is not meant to define the gifts. And many people have missed, have missed that, that, that uh, point of the passage and missed the context there, and they have used this verse to try to define tongues as, this is what it means, it means you speak in an angelic language. But since this is the only mention of angelic languages anywhere in the Bible, and the context shows that it really shouldn't be taken literally, we have no biblical reason to think that the gift of tongues 
has anything to do with the languages of angels. Okay, chapter 14, verse 2. Another key passage to help us understand what is going on with the gift of tongues. We just saw this one, but let's look at it again. It says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them, for they utter mysteries by the Spirit. Now, it's, it's actually pretty striking how the gift, as it's being practiced here, and as Paul's describing it, is very different than what happened on the day of Pentecost, right? At Pentecost, everyone understood, in their own language, exactly what was being said. Here, no one understands what's being said. Um, not quite sure why the change is there, but, but Paul says, anyone who speaks in a tongue cannot be understood by anyone other than God, or someone who has been given the gift of interpreting tongues. And that's a key point in this whole chapter, because if there is an interpreter who can explain the meanings of the tongues, then according to verse 5, 14.5, the church is edified. The church is, is benefited from that if the tongue can be interpreted. What Paul's saying is that tongues really functions pretty similarly to prophecy. Um, it is a way that God gives the church a message that he wants them to hear, um, just like in prophecy. God does this by using a gifted person who receives the message from God and delivers it to the church, just like in prophecy. The difference is that with tongues, there is an extra step of interpretation before people can benefit from the message and the church can be built up. Why does God sometimes do it this way? Why does he sometimes send his messages needing this interpretive step before they can be understood? It was a sign that the message was truly from God. 1 Corinthians 14 is an interesting mix of positive and negative statements about tongues. Verses 18 to 19 are a really good example of that, uh, that mixture. Paul says, uh, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Very positive. Paul says, hey, tongues is, I speak in tongues all the time, more than any of you guys. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. That's fairly harsh. Uh, criticism of the way that they were speaking in tongues. So that mix of positive and negative is because Paul recognizes tongues as a legitimate gift of the Spirit, but the Corinthians were not using the gift in the right way. And so Paul lays out some rules for how tongues should be practiced and also for how prophecy should be practiced. And here it is uh, in verse, uh, starting with verse 26. Uh, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Their services were a lot like ours in that uh, they include a number of different elements. There's a sermon, there's singing, there's uh, different people sharing different parts of the thing. They're taking the communion, they're doing many different things as part of their service. Um, and each of those different things were ways that people sought to help one another to build up the church. Some led music, some gave instruction, 
and there were tongues and interpretations. Then he's, he gives the instructions about tongues here in the next verse. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So these were the ground rules for the use of the gift that Paul gave to the church. No more than two or three should speak, one at a time, and only if there is a gifted interpreter. And Mike and I were talking about this. We're not quite sure how you were supposed to know whether there was an interpreter there before you spoke, but somehow Paul expected them to know and, and to refrain if there was no interpreter. If there's no interpreter, just keep quiet. So why do you need an interpreter? Because the whole point is to deliver a message from God to build up the church. Without an interpreter, the message cannot be delivered, and so there's no point in speaking. Similar rules given for prophecy in the church. In the next verses, he says, Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So the whole thing needs to be orderly and controlled. People speak one at a time. They're able to take turns in a peaceful way. God is not a God of chaos and disorder. So how many Harry Potter fans? Any Harry Potter fans? There, okay, a few people. So you remember the scene in the Harry Potter, uh, either in the movie or the book, where uh, Professor Trelawney gives a prophecy about Harry, and uh, and and when that happens, it, it describes her as suddenly going into a trance, and then this deep voice speaks from within her and delivers the prophecy, and then when the prophecy is done, she kind of wakes up and doesn't even realize that anything happened. Um, so the prophecy like takes over her. That is not at all what we are talking about here. The prophets and the people speaking in tongues, as described here in Corinthians, they're not out of control. They are in full control of their faculties. They're able to speak or not speak according to whether or not it's appropriate. They're able to take turns. They're able to stop in the middle and let somebody else have a turn. Um, we're talking about a, a, a controlled experience here where the people exercising these gifts are very much still in control of themselves. But if these rules are followed, then Paul is very much in favor of the practice of tongues and prophecy in the church. The discussion concludes at the end of the chapter with this uh, concluding statement. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So then, why don't we practice tongues here at Clearwater? And the same question might be true of prophecy, depending on how you define it. If we define prophecy the way a lot of people do, with a very broad definition, uh, including speaking a message from God that we receive through reading and studying the Bible, then we do practice prophecy here at uh, Clearwater uh, every week. But if you define it more narrowly, as I believe the Bible does, as information that the prophet receives directly from God and, and, and speaks to the people as bringing a, a message directly from God, 
then we don't really practice that either. So why not? Why don't we have tons of prophecy? Well, um, first, our position is we are convinced that God can do whatever he wants to do. Right? So clearly God used tongues and prophecy in the past, and there is no reason to think that he could not do that again today, tomorrow, in the future. Um, so we do not rule out the possibility of tongues and prophecy being used by God. Now some people have tried to make a case from the scriptures to prove that tongues and prophecy, as well as some of the other spiritual gifts, have ceased. But Pastor Mike and I have talked about this, and we agree that these biblical cases all fall short of conclusively demonstrating uh, that the Bible teaches this. Uh, however, there are at least two good reasons for believing that the practice of tongues and prophecy as a normal part of the life of the church was a temporary situation uh, related to the early years of the founding of Christianity. And these reasons are both related to the purposes of both tongues of prophecy. Both of these gifts were intended to bring messages from God to the people. And it was necessary for there to be an extraordinary amount of this in the first hundred years or so of the church, because uh, in those years uh, there were no Christian scriptures. The churches had the Old Testament, and they used that, but the New Testament scriptures were not yet uh, written. They were being written, and they were being collected and distributed among the churches during this time. And so, without access to a complete written revelation of God, the church needed frequent prophetic messages to teach them the things that we can now learn from the Bible. And once the biblical books were written, and they were recognized in the church, and they were distributed widely among the churches, these gifts were no longer needed to the same way that they were in those early years. And so, in fact, their use faded away. The second purpose of especially tongues, but also prophecy, was a dramatic, miraculous sign of God's endorsement of what was being said. When the apostles first started preaching this new gospel message of Jesus, God chose to show his approval of what was happening by giving them the ability to do many miraculous things, including dramatic healings, and the gift of tongues. When Peter and John healed a crippled beggar at the temple gate in Jerusalem, it was a sign that God was with them and the message about Jesus that they were speaking. When the believers were able to speak in the languages of the people from all over the world at Pentecost, that was a sign to show people that God was there and that God was endorsing what these Christians were we're teaching. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. It says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. But, once the truth of the gospel was established by these signs, and they were recorded for us in the Bible, it was not necessary for God to continually reconfirm the message through frequent signs. We now have the message of the apostles and the record of God's miraculous endorsement of their message in written form. Therefore, the need for fresh signs is greatly diminished. 
We are now in the situation that Jesus talked about in Luke 16. In that passage, he, he, he taught that if people would not listen to Moses and the prophets, which was the Bible as it existed at that time, if they would not listen to the Bible, they would not listen even if someone rose from the dead. Miraculous evidence will not be effective with people who have the Bible but refuse to listen to it. So, our position as a church is that, of course, God could still use tongues and prophecy today. He is God, and he can do whatever he wants to do. But the situation in Corinth that Paul was addressing was different from our own situation in significant ways. Due to the lack of the New Testament scriptures to guide them, God chose to reveal himself and his will through divinely inspired messages delivered through the tongues and prophecy. And so we should not expect that these particular spiritual gifts to be as active in the church today the way they were in Corinth. And lastly, what do we say about churches where these gifts are regularly practiced today? What, 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 is our, what are we to think of, of churches where they're doing these things? First, we say that if you're going to use these gifts, they should be used according to the rules that are laid out here. Two or three speakers, one at a time, in an orderly way, no tongues without interpretation. Churches where they are not following these rules are not exercising the gifts properly. And if Paul visited those churches, he would correct them. But if they are practicing the gifts in the way that the Bible says, uh, they are still worshiping significantly differently than what we do here at Clearwater. But here's what I know. Many of these people have a solid belief in good gospel teaching. They know and believe most all the same doctrines that we believe, especially the core doctrines regarding our salvation. And even those who are practicing the gifts improperly Oftentimes, the content of their faith is actually pretty good. And I expect to see many people in heaven from Pentecostal and Charismatic churches. Just like I expect to see many people in heaven from ancient Corinth, despite all the problems that they had in that church, including this problem and many other things. Now, I hope that we've learned something about tongues and prophecy today. But the main takeaway this morning is from the first section of the message. Do everything you can to build up the church. Use the gifts that God has given you to build up the church. Whatever gifts, whatever resources you have, use them for the building up of his church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in many ways uh, over many years and for revealing yourself to the people of Corinth through the gifts of tongues and prophecy. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would continue to help us to understand the revelation that you have given us in your word. May we always be seeking to know you more and to make you known more. We ask this in your son, Jesus. Amen.